Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. I'm excited about getting up here today and opening up a brand new series entitled Glory. Uh, We're going to have a lot of fun over the next several weeks as we dive into this passage. Uh, You might be thinking, well, glory, that's a a word we hear in church a lot. We don't hear it so much uh, outside of church, maybe on the, you know, on the sports field or something like that, but we don't hear glory very often. What is glory? Glory, and I want you to think of it this way, is mainly just God's character. It's his nature. It's his radiance. It's how he uh, reveals himself to us, how he relates to us. That's what glory is. And there's an interesting passage that I want to send you to. So grab your Bible, uh, grab your Bible app, whatever you're using this morning. I want you to head over to Exodus chapter 34. This is where we're going to be for the next several weeks And I'll tell you why, because this is an amazing passage. It's where God reveals his glory. He reveals who he is, his character and his attributes. God himself speaks to us and tells us exactly who he is. And I want us to spend some time over the next few weeks kind of unwrapping all of this and discovering maybe some aspects of God that we didn't realize before and just draw closer to him over the next few weeks. And so that's the idea behind this uh, This series glory. And so I hope that you'll just kind of um, check, bar, uh, check yourself and say, okay, every week for the next six weeks, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to learn as much as I can about the glory of God. Now, before I get going, I want to remind you, we haven't asked anything uh, program at the bottom of the screen is a phone number. If you have any questions during the message, you can text those in. Uh, if we have some time at the end of the, the service, we might get our pastors up here. If we don't, uh, my, my guess is we won't today because uh, we got a lot to cover today, kind of setting the tone for this entire series. But if we um, don't get to your question up front, we always text back an answer, and so you'll get an answer one way or the other. So keep that in mind as we go through the message this morning. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, uh, my parents used to take me to state fairs a lot. They would take me, you know, we'd go to big carnivals and things like that, and there was usually somebody at these carnivals that would sit out uh, with an easel, and you could pay some money and you could have them draw a caricature of you. Do you, you remember what these caricatures are? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like these pictures that they're super over-exaggerated. Um, my wife, who's our branding and communications officer, decided it was a good idea to send all the pastor's pictures off a while back. And she had caricatures drawn of all of us. And now that we have Pastor Miguel on staff, we're going to have to get his done and see what his looks like. But anyway, she was having a lot of fun with this and just messing around. And, and, uh, but, but the interesting thing about character, uh, caricatures is they over-exaggerate certain features and they minimize others, right? And this is the fun part about it. It's what makes it a lot of fun. And, and to exaggerate these physical features, uh, it makes it either really, um, I don't know, comical or grotesque. You can say grotesque, I, I guess, because look at my ears. Um, that's amazing. And then uh, Ryan's beard, Mike's eyes and his teeth, you know, his perfect teeth. And then, then Tim's jawline, they had a lot of fun with this, right? And over-exaggerating certain features. But then look at our necks. I don't think those necks are going to hold those heads up, right? 
Uh, but, but it's fun because they exaggerate these physical features in a way that makes them recognizable, yet they're pretty funny. And um, when we're doing this to each other, just having fun, it's, it's a blast. But when it comes to God, a caricature of God is, is not funny at all. Exaggerating, I think, one attribute of his and, and minimizing others, I, I think, uh, distorts a view of God in a way that people can easily dismiss because we just we put so much emphasis on one attribute and minimize others and we turn God into something that he's not. And like a caricature, a distorted view of God, I think, many times can, can be dismissed. It's not taken seriously. Uh, those of you that see God or you portray him in your mind as this angry, demanding judge, you're easily lured away when you find mercy somewhere else. Those of you that think of God as this kind-hearted grandfather are going to struggle in following him when you get to a situation in life where you're really in need of some justice. Uh, those of you that think of God as just this intellectual thought uh, instead of this loving, caring being that he is, you're going to eventually find an idea that you find more appealing than God, and you're going to leave him. Those of you that see God as a best friend, you're going you're gonna to leave him behind when you find a friend who, I don't know, is more to your liking. And so when we turn God into something that he's not, we can easily dismiss him. Uh, and I think so often that's what we do. We, we overemphasize certain attributes and, and minimize others, things that we don't like maybe, and we focus on the things that we really want to see in our God, and we turn him into something that he's not. Now, we need to avoid portraying God as only having the attributes that we find favorable. We need to take God for his, his whole self and, and worship all of God, every aspect of God, because he is exactly what is needed, all aspects of him, not just the parts that we like. Now, my question is, if you were going to do this to God this morning, how would you draw God, right? Or let's make it easier on ourselves. How would you just describe him? Because I think the way that you would describe him is by using the attributes that you like the most or the ones that you've encountered more in your life. Uh, If you try to describe God, I think that is such a daunting task. And so instead of me trying to describe God or you trying to describe God, here's what I want us to do in this series. I want us to go to the place in Scripture where he actually described himself because we know that's going to be accurate. And here in Exodus chapter 34, God actually testifies to himself. He tells Moses who he is. Take a look at this. Exodus chapter 34, going to verse 5, it says, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. And he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. This is God describing himself. And even as I was reading that, I know there are many of us in this room that are like, ooh, I like that. I like that. Ooh, I don't like that. I don't know about that. And this is what we do when we start talking about the attributes of God. And there's so much in this. It's going to take several weeks to cover this. And so we've just decided we're going to focus on this and we're going to get to know the attributes of God, the glory of God. And so today, I want us to focus on this line. How he starts off, he says, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. He is a God of compassion and mercy. And I think so many Google arguments are all about this aspect of God. 
trying to prove that God is not a God of compassion and mercy, and yet this is the first thing that he uses to describe himself. And I, I want to show this to you kind of in a, a different way today, especially if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, this church thing. Uh, you might find this interesting, but what I want to do is I want to go clear back to the very beginning, Genesis 1, and I just kind of want to skip along the top of the history leading up to Exodus 34 and show you why God starting off this way is so interesting and why he is a God of compassion and mercy. Because when you go clear back to Genesis, you find out that God created the entire universe. He created everything in it, and he creates man his own image, man and woman. And he places them there in the garden. Why? Because he wants an internal relationship with them, with his own creation. He created them in his own image. And the idea was an eternal, close relationship. He would even come and walk with them in the cool of the day, and they would have conversations. And yet, what happens in that moment? If you know the story, sin enters in the picture, right? Original sin, and it breaks the relationship between God and Adam and Eve. And so they're uh, led out of the garden, it doesn't take them very long after they leave the garden to have two sons, Cain and Abel, and, and you would think they would start to get things right, but they don't. It, pretty soon Cain becomes jealous of Abel, and he kills his own brother. And this starts this descent into evil, and you just see it over and over in Scripture. Now, God could have wiped out Adam and Eve, and he didn't. He gave him another chance. He, he could have wiped out Cain, and he didn't. Why? Because he's a God of compassion and mercy. And then by the time um, we get to Genesis chapter 6, things, things have gotten so bad. God says this, um, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything, everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. So why didn't he just wipe off the face of the earth? Why didn't he just do away with it? Because he's a God of compassion and mercy, and he finds one guy by the name of Noah. He finds this one guy, it says here in Genesis chapter 6, that Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, the only blameless person, and he walked in close fellowship with God. So because of this one person, a God of compassion and mercy decides he's going to start over again with him. And so he has him build an ark, he puts his whole family on it, and even after the flood, when, when the, the ark rests on dry ground, they flow out of the ark, and it doesn't take them very long for wickedness to set in. Like, immediately, they go right back to doing the things that they're not supposed to do. And they continue in this wickedness, and they want to be like God. And as they multiply, they, they start to stretch toward heaven. And, and in Genesis chapter 11, they do something very interesting. Then they said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. Um, they want to be like God. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered from uh, all over the world. But the Lord came down and looked at the city and the tower and the people were building. And, and he said, look, this isn't going to happen. Like I told you to, to go into all the world and, and multiply. And yet you're gathering together and you're trying to build a tower to be like me. And so he confuses them by introducing all these languages and they're scattered across the face of the earth. And it's interesting because there, we're lost and it's just a total uh, case of depravity until we get to um, Genesis chapter 12. And we're introduced to a guy by the name of Abram. And God calls Abram in. He says, I'm going to start with you. 
If you leave your country, just go. I'm going to show you where to go. Just follow me in that. I'll make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you famous. And not just to, to bless you, but so that you might be a blessing to the entire world. You're going to reflect my glory, my attributes to the rest of the world so they might know me and turn to me. This is God's design and his desire. And he creates a covenant with Abram. And then in Genesis chapter 15, This was part of that covenant. It says, Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as, what? Righteous because of his faith. It was always about faith. It was always about faith. It will always be about faith. God wants us to trust him, to put our faith in him, to follow him. And he finds Abram, and, and Abram places his faith in, in him, and it counts, it counts it as righteous. And yet, even in this world where Abram's living, the, the whole place is just spiraling downward. There's a city by, uh, by the name of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and the only reason Abram cares about it is because his nephew lives close to there. And he goes to God, and, he, and God says, I'm going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah because it's become so evil. And he says, look... Why would you wipe it out? There might be some righteous people there. Don't wipe it out if there's righteous people. If there's 50 righteous people, would you, would you wipe it out? And God says, because it was compassion and mercy, he says, no, if, if there's 50, I won't wipe it out. And, and what's interesting is Noah knows there's not 50, and so he continues to bargain with him until he gets him all the way down to 10. God, if there's just 10 righteous people, would you not wipe it out? And God agrees because of his compassion and mercy. I won't wipe it out. But you know what happened, right? They couldn't even find 10 righteous people. God wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes on and he changes Abram's name to Abraham and his wife Sarai. He changes her name to Sarah. He gives them a child in their old age. They give birth to Isaac. There's a whole thing with Isaac. He's not perfect either, but God continues his covenant with Isaac. And then he passes it on to his son. Uh, Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob even steals Esau's birthright. He shouldn't have, but he does. And he runs to the east, runs away. And yet God in all of this is compassionate. He's, he has mercy. He continues to forgive. And pretty soon we see where Jacob has 12 sons, which will end up representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he'll bring his entire family back to Canaan. Out of these 12 sons, the 11th one, um, Joseph, It's kind of a cocky little guy. His brothers will hate him, and they'll sell him into slavery and send him off to Egypt. And yet, even in the midst of that, God will continue his covenant. Even in that mess, God will have mercy and compassion. And Joseph will go to Egypt, and all all along, this was God's plan to rescue his people. And and by the time Joseph gets there, this is the end of, of Genesis is an amazing story. So many things happen to him, and God protects him and, and guides him to a place where the famine is, is coming to Egypt. And he blesses Joseph in such a way that he can interpret a dream, and he is elevated to the second in command in Egypt. And then his entire family from Canaan comes to Egypt looking for food because the famine has gotten so great. And Joseph is able to rescue his whole family and brings them to Egypt. And then we go from Genesis into Exodus. And what's interesting is there's a 400-year lapse there. God is completely silent, but he has continued to bless his people. And bless them in such a way, in fact, that Pharaoh is afraid of them. 
He starts to enslave them. He starts to wipe out all their, their uh, children that were born, born male. He's doing everything that he can to limit God's blessing on their life. They've been enslaved for quite a while, and, and they begin to cry out to God. And God, because he's a God of compassion and mercy, hears their prayer. He responds, and he takes a guy by the name of Moses, who's not perfect, by the way. He's a murderer. He meets him at a burning bush and sends him back to his people. And you might know the story, but Moses goes back and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no, and it goes on for quite a while. And there's 10 plagues, and finally they say, go, get out of here. Um, take, take your stuff, get out, and here's all of our jewels and expensive items just to leave. Please just leave, and they leave. And now God's people are going out across the wilderness with all of this Egyptian gold and everything, and they get to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh changes his mind. He sends his army after him. And at this point, at the edge of the Red Sea, the people turn on Moses, and they turn on God. After all of this, after all the plagues and everything that they've seen, they turn on God again. And does God just go and say, fine, have it your way and let the Egyptian army mow him down? No, because he's a God of compassion and mercy. And he splits the Red Sea. They walk across on dry ground. Egyptian, the Egyptian army goes in after him. And God closes up the sea and wipes out their enemy. And you would think at that moment, like, okay, we finally get it. We'll follow you. We'll obey you. But they don't. It doesn't take but one chapter, and all of a sudden, the grumbling begins. Would you bring us out here in the desert so we can thirst? We're just going to die of thirst. That's what we're going to do. Us, our children, all of our livestock. And does God lash out at them? Does he say, hey, cut this out, or I'm going to pull the car over? No. You know what he does? He provides 12 springs, best water they've ever had. And you would think they would finally go, okay, I get it. But they don't. The very next chapter, they're complaining about not having enough to eat. They're never satisfied. They're grumbling all the time. And what does God do? He feeds them out of his own hand. Literally. Like sends this white, flaky, bread-like substance on the ground every morning. And here's what's interesting. Um, I want faith from my people. I want them to put faith in me. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to collect enough of that manna, is what it was called, for one day. Don't collect enough for the next day because it'll be rotten by the next day. And I'm going to provide it for you every day. Why? Because I want you to trust in me for your daily needs. I want you to have faith in me. And I'll count it to you as righteous. And you would think that they would finally get it. They're, they're not soldiers. They're, they've been prisoners for 400 years, and they've got all this, this gold, this Egyptian gold, and they're out in the middle of the wilderness. They're susceptible. And so Amalek and his soldiers see this, and they're like, this is an easy one. Let's just go slaughter, and we'll take the gold from them. And, and so here they come, and, and you would think in this moment that uh, you know, God would go ahead and let them go because they're complaining so much, but God doesn't. He protects them. Why? Because he's a God of compassion and mercy. And so Moses tells Joshua, go into battle, take all the men. And he goes on top of the hill, and as he's on top of the hill, he holds up his arms. And as long as he's holding up his arms in a, in a motion of like, we worship God, we're dependent upon God, as long as his arms are up, they're winning the battle. But when he gets tired and his arms start to drop, they start losing the battle. And so Aaron and her, they go up on top of the hill with Moses, and they help hold his arms up until it says that God brought about a great victory that day. God protected his people. Why? Because he's a God of compassion and mercy. 
every step of the way. We would just turn against him, and yet he, he, would, be a, um, he would express compassion and mercy every stinking time. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 19, this entire nation has showed up at the foot of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And they're standing there at the bottom of this mountain, and they're going to be there for an entire year because this is where God is going to solidify his covenant with his people. And he starts it off by giving Moses the Ten Commandments. He gives them instructions because you're going to be a different people. I want you to have faith in me. I want you to trust in me. And this is how I want you to live because you're going to be a reflection of my glory to the world around you so that they might see who I am. And he gives him the Ten Commandments. And if you know about the Ten Commandments, the first four are all about loving God. It's our interaction with God. The last six are how we interact with other people, each other, which is very interesting because later on, Jesus would give us the great commandment which is to love God and love others, summing up the entire law. Moses goes down from the mountain, and he reads this off to the people. And this is what happens. As he reads this off to the people, it says in Exodus 24, 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded. Check this out. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will what? We'll obey. We'll obey. So Moses turns around, he goes back up onto the mountain to receive more instruction from God. And you know what they do? They don't obey. They fashion an idol. They melt the gold and they make a golden calf and they begin to worship it and they have an orgy out in front of it. And the whole time God's looking down from the mountain going, are you kidding me? And in this moment, you think God's finally had it, like his compassion and mercy has run out. Because he tells Moses, I'm, I'm sick and tired of these stiff-necked people. Your people. It's the first time he refers to them as Moses' people and not his own. It's a great text. And yet Moses, on behalf of the people, asks for God's compassion and mercy. And because he is a God of compassion and mercy, he grants it. God tells Moses to, to go down and take care of the issue. And he does. He goes down. He wipes out the idol. It's, it's a great story. It's one of my favorites. He grinds it up, makes the people drink it. Um, and I love the point in that because eventually that's going to come out where, right? And he's saying, this is what I think about your golden idol. And then Moses goes back up on the hill to meet with God. And this is where we get our text. It's right on the tail end of this idolatry, of this golden calf that God in Exodus chapter 34 says this. Then the Lord came down and wiped him from the face of the earth, right? No. He came down in a cloud and stood there with him and he called out his own name, Yahweh. And the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. On the tail end of, of the golden calf, this is what he says. And what I find interesting is this has had such an impact over the centuries that, that verse 6 here is actually the most repeated scripture in all the Bible. It shows up over 20 times in the Bible. They continue to, to refer back to God being a compassionate and merciful God. So today, we're going to dwell on this. The Lord, the God of compassion, and mercy. And notice that when God begins to um, show his glory, when he get, begins to explain his attributes, he, he doesn't start with wrath and he doesn't start with anger, but he starts with these mercy filled attributes. 
See, God didn't give Moses a vision of his power. He gave him a vision of his love. Clearly, God means to emphasize his great compassion and his mercy, even in the face of this wicked idolatry, them serving a golden idol and doing all the things that they weren't supposed to do. And if you think about it, they've just been given the Ten Commandments. Oh, we'll obey. And what do they do? They break the first two. Do not have any other gods and don't make any images. Don't have any idols in your home. And they broke the first two right off the bat. And God, being creator God, who owns all things, he could have decided, I'm done. I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And he didn't, because he is a God of compassion and mercy. Now, it's easy for us to read through Exodus 34, uh, all these attributes that were given, almost like a menu, like we're going to pick and choose which ones we like. And we need to be careful not to do that. We need to make sure that we read those and we stop at each one and we, we ponder and we wonder with gratitude each and every one of these attributes of our God because they make him who he is and they have, a, they have a lot to do with who we are. Now, I think for us to meet a person's need, we need to have both compassion and mercy. They both have to be in operation because compassion compels us to the one in need and mercy is what actually meets that need. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who hurt us. That's compassion. He also goes on to tell us to forgive those who have wronged us, to forgive our enemies. That's mercy. We need both compassion and mercy. Um, when you take a look at this idea of God is a compassion and mercy, um, Raum and Hanun, it's two Hebrew words, and, and we miss it in the English, but in the, in the Hebrew, it actually rhymes. It's got this, this cadence to it. It's actually beautiful. He's a God of Raum and Hanun. And what I love about these words is especially the one for compassion. When you take a look at the, the word for compassion uh, as a noun, it's rahamin, and, and it actually is tied to the Hebrew word for womb. And, and there's something beautiful. There's a picture that comes out of that, that, that God is, is communicating to Moses that we need to grasp today. And, and it's this idea that God is saying, look, I have compassion for you like a mother has for a newborn child. Like a mother of a newborn child would never turn on her child. She would care for that child, even if that child was sick and crying and, and, and you know, messing in his diapers and, and crying all night long. A mother never neglects the child, never pushes the child aside. Even as the child grows older and begins to do things that are wrong, they might discipline the child, but that doesn't affect how much the mother loves the child. And God is saying, that's the same type of love that I have for you. As you grow, as you mature, you're going to do things that are wrong and you're going to think that I hate you because of that and you're going to turn away from me, but know that that hasn't changed my love for you one bit. I love you as a mother loves a child. Now, some of you came in here today and that is why you're here because you needed to hear that. Because a couple of you in this room, I know, you probably are at a place where you think that because of what you've done or where you've been, that God doesn't love you anymore, that he's done with you. He's run out of compassion and mercy for you, that it's over for you, and you're struggling in that. I want you to know that God is a God of compassion and mercy. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, it does not affect his love for you one bit. He will love you regardless. Does he want you to repent and come back? Absolutely. Will he take you back like a mother will take her child back? Yes. This, this is the picture that, 
that he's given to Moses in this moment. And Jesus actually shows up on the scene and he becomes the physical rahamin, the, the compassion of God. All through Jesus' life, Jesus shows his compassion for uh, the least of these, for the orphans, for the widows, for the poor, everybody. He's, he's always showing compassion for everyone, even to a point to where he gets physically ill several times as he looks at people and just hurts for them because he knows that they're, they're like wandering sheep, they're lost. His compassion knows no end. One of the greatest signs, I think, that we are children of God is that we have that same compassion, that rahamin. It shows up in our own life. We hurt for a world that hurts around us. We hurt for those who don't know Christ. We desire for them to know the same Savior that we know. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, you must be compassionate because your God, your Father in heaven, is compassionate. Now you can see why he started this list off of explaining who he was with compassion. He said, I am compassion, but I'm also mercy. See, his image bearers, when we turn our backs on him, God, because of his love, he's compelled to reach out to us in compassion and mercy. Uh, Mercy is not receiving what we deserve for punishment, right? Like all of us have sinned. We're deserving of death, and yet God takes that from us, so we, we receive mercy, but it's even more than that. See, this word for mercy, hanun, actually refers to a gift given with delight or with favor. Like, like it means that God delights in not having to punish us. It says in Scripture that he desires that everyone should come to faith, that everyone should know him. He desires that no one should perish. He delights in not extending punishment to us. By giving us a second chance. And and so often, we struggle in forgiving ourselves, and yet God is like, here's mercy. And I delight in giving that to you. Showing you favor. I delight in that. This mercy is so desired, in fact, that when you read through the book of Psalms, you'll see it come up over 40 times where the authors are crying out for God's mercy. Please extend your mercy, your hanun to us. Um, Ephesians says that God is rich in mercy. See, I think the sheer fact that we have Exodus 34 shows that we serve a God of compassion. This is the second time that Moses has gone up on the hill. First time he received those instructions, he came down, we will obey, he goes back up. And, and by the time he goes back up, they've already fashioned a golden idol. The people are down at the base of the mountain. They're turning on God, violating the first two commandments before anything could ever happen. And when Moses comes down off the mountain the first time, these people have actually fallen in love with the works of their own hands. They've forgotten who God is already. They were already worshiping something else. The covenant that God made with his people was was clear. The first portion of it says this. Now, if you will what? Obey me and keep my covenant. You will be my special treasure from among all peoples on the earth, and all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. That's all you have to do is just obey. That's all they had to do. And yet they continued to turn their backs on God. But instead of resting in the value of God and his attributes, the people became restless and they created their own God. They exchanged the glory of the invisible God for the glory of something that was fashioned by their own hands, a golden calf, and they began to worship it instead. 
See, all through the history, they had turned their backs on God. And yet he was a God of compassion and mercy. They'd been unbelieving at the Red Sea. They were grumbling against God in the wilderness because of water and because of food. So this rebellion with this golden calf should have ended God's patience. And as I said before, he did. He said, look, I'm done with this stiff-necked people, and yet he still showed compassion and mercy. But here we are in Exodus 34. We're back on top of the mountain. We're awaiting God's revelation for some more instruction. God has not destroyed the people. And he begins to explain to Moses exactly who he is. And I think the sheer fact that we even have that passage is proof that God is merciful. He didn't. He could have, and he didn't. Now, my question is this. How is God compassion and merciful? What's the ultimate example of that? Because if you follow the story on from Exodus, what you find out is it just gets worse and worse as it goes along. By the time you get to the book of Judges, you're ready just to close the book because they don't seem to get it. And I don't know about you, but the number of times I've read through there and I'm like, seriously? Like, we're going to go here again? Like, why didn't we get it? And yet when I reflect forward and I look at our own lives today and what we're doing and look at our world and what, we, what we're doing in our world today, I'm like, why didn't he just wipe us off the face of the earth now? Like, think about all the stuff that's going on around the globe right now. You know why? Because he's a God of compassion and mercy. And, and even from Exodus chapter 34, you fast forward 1,400 years, you see the ultimate example of that because after mankind had continued to sin against him, God would still send his own son who would come and live a perfect life. We have a God who doesn't understand what we're going through. He, he was here. He lived it. He experienced loss. He knows what pain is. He wept over a lost friend. He knows exactly what we're going through. And yet he lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and gave his life to pay for our sins so that he could extend eternal mercy to us. We could be forgiven and made right with God. And not only did he die for our sins, but he rose again. So not, not only is it about this life, but it's about eternity. We get to spend eternity with God because we serve a compassionate and merciful God. The God of compassion and mercy calls us to himself. And when we receive him, we are made right because of what Jesus did, because of his ultimate compassion and mercy. And then we can begin a walk, a journey with him. And in that moment, this God of compassion and mercy calls us, his people, to exemplify the same attributes in our lives. As God has been compassionate and merciful to us, we're called to show that same compassion and mercy to the world around us. See, according to Psalm 82, God instructs us to give justice to the poor and to the orphan, uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, rescue the poor and helpless, deliver them from the grasp of evil people. God calls us to be people that are compassionate and merciful. Why? Because he is a God of compassion and mercy. Mercy and compassion are rooted in the very character of God. God is a God of compassion and mercy. God said it, the word commands it, wisdom teaches it, the Proverbs encourage it, and the Psalms applaud it. God is a God of compassion and mercy. And of course, the fullest expression of God's compassion and mercy is in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, what he was able to accomplish on the cross and emptying out the grave. He 
was compassion and mercy incarnate in the flesh and demonstrated that for us and made a way for us to be able to to be reconnected, reunited with God through his Holy Spirit. And as God does his work in us, as we begin to embrace this attribute of God, that he is a God of compassion and mercy, and it's the only way, listen to me, the only way that you and I are still here today is because he's a God of compassion and mercy. When we truly understand that and embrace that, we can't help ourselves but to let those attributes flow through us to the people around us. If we say that we follow Jesus, then God's attributes should be evident in every one of our lives. We should be living this out. But if I'm honest, I'll just tell you this, I struggle in being a person of compassion and mercy. I don't know about you. That's difficult for me. And so I have to lean into God I have to be reminded of his compassion and mercy toward me every day so that I can be a better person as I, I, as I move forward, as I, as I look more and more like him, as I reflect him in my actions and my compassion and my mercy. But it takes me to go back and look at what he's extended to me. As we experience his compassion and mercy, then we should be able to become more compassionate and merciful ourselves. My prayer is today you would embrace this attribute of God, that you would understand how important this is, because without this, we wouldn't be here today. And yet, as he extends that to us, I pray that we're able to extend that same compassion and mercy to the people around us. I want to pray for that for all of us. Would you join me in that? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. First of all, as we're talking about today, that you are a God of compassion and mercy. God, without that, um, none of us would be here. It would be easy just to, to call it quits and to, to take us from the face of the earth, Lord. Clear back in, in the time of Adam and Eve, much less now. But Lord, because you are a God who has compassion and mercy, you desire that we all come to faith, that we all have a relationship with you. You put up with some of the stuff that goes on in our world today. And Lord, I pray that in all these things that we would continue to be people that look more and more like you. And as we experience your compassion and mercy, Lord, would you help us to be able to express that, to have that evident in our lives as as we interact with the people around us, as we interact with people um, in our families, as we interact with people at work, at school. God, I pray even with the people that we struggle with, would you give us compassion and mercy? May we be a reflection of the glory of God. Lord, we give you all these things. We ask that you continue to use this to mold and shape us into people that look more and more like you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.